Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. My name is Aaron Johnstone. Today we're asking the question, what does healthy masculinity look like? The last 50 to 60 years have brought unprecedented change when it comes to understanding and rewriting our understanding of gender roles in a complex and diverse society. Today's episode is not so much going to look at all the aspects of gender that we could cover, but we want to zero in on manhood and masculinity in particular. Being a man has always brought a range of advantages and power dynamics that we're coming to understand more and more, but there are also challenges that we do well to try and dig into as well. What I have found over a long time is bored men are dangerous. Bored men do stupid things. Today we have Al Stewart, who has recently written a book on masculinity called The Manual. I'm privileged to call him a friend and someone that I've admired and worked alongside over my time with Third Space and City Bible Forum. He's currently the director of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches and has extensive experience in Christian ministry. We don't tend to get pastors on this show much, or at all really, but he's learned a lot about blokes over the last few decades, and his book hits on an important topic for our culture. I'm sure you'll find him as endearing and thoughtful as I do. Al Stewart, welcome to Deeper Questions. G'day Aaron, thanks for that uh, kind introduction mate. Of course. (laughs) So Al, I've known you for a while, and one of your annual traditions is to go to the middle of nowhere and shoot feral pigs. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, one of my earliest memories is walking around uh, farms up in the northern North New South Wales with my dad and uh, shooting rabbits, etc. And then I think Dad Dad took me when I was about fifteen out to uh, uh, Western New South Wales, and uh, we shot feral pigs. And uh, I've got to say, it is just great fun, and of course, uh, good for the environment. Um, so was it 1999, I saved up my money and my dad, my brother and I went hunting to Cape York, like right up the pointy end of Queensland. Yeah. It's just amazing up there. I just love that country. So I told Kathy it was once in a lifetime, but as it turns out, I think I'm about to have my 23rd lifetime. <laughs> uh, so Kathy's a, uh, a great lady. She's happy for me to go once a year. She says, just go, get it out of your system, come back happy. Um, that's that's the deal we have. Yeah. So in a week's time, I'm disappearing with uh, with a very good friend and another mate who runs the show up there. Um, it's just good for the soul, mostly just to spend ten days in the bush mm. and uh, be woken up by the birds and sit around a fire and you know, yeah, it, it's it's great. Lovely. So good for the environment, good for the soul, good for your marriage. What's not to love? <laughs> Ah, it's just win, win, win all around, yeah. Absolutely. All right, so you do that. That's one of the ways that you kind of uh, exert your testosterone. Um, what are some of the other <laughs> most cliche slash stereotypical masculine things that you get up to? Oh, cliched. Yeah, uh, actually, a lot of the cliched stuff, it's not It's not what masculinity is all about, but it's fun. Yeah. Um, we, get, we own an old, um, we bought an old farmhouse not far from Goulburn on the southern highlands of New South Wales. And uh, in the winter, it gets to minus five. So one of one of the things I love is actually uh, I've got a chainsaw and uh, cutting firewood with a chainsaw, and uh, then splitting it with a log splitter and lighting fires. Uh, I love it. It's it's just good for the soul. Um, <laughs> and of course, if you own a little farmhouse, you got to have a Hilux dual cab, and uh, that's my my happy car. So I get in that and. Um, 
pretend I'm a farmer. It doesn't fool anybody, but that's that's fun. Uh, so there's some pretty uh, stereotyped, cliched things. Yeah, it's just good fun. Yeah, nice one. All right, well, let's um, let's change the trajectory of the episode. We'll do a bit of a bait and switch now. Um, we're going to look at masculinity, but we're also going to kind of see that it's not necessarily one thing, is it? So I want to ask the inverse of the last question. What are some of the things that you enjoy doing that don't necessarily fall into the typical masculine stereotypes? Um, Ten days ago, um, our little 19-month-old granddaughter um, and my daughter came up from, um, from Melbourne and we had the little one for the weekend and I spent the morning in creche at church with a 19-month-old and being crawled all over by all the other little kids and and it was great. Read stories and, you know, carried them around and I'm going to arrange to get myself on the Christ roster at church. Oh, very good. That probably doesn't fit the stereotype, but, um, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Teach him how to shoot a gun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Oh, what else? Oh, i tell you what else. Um, when we can get the family together, our kids and grandkids, I love cooking breakfast. So uh, I'm pretty good with scrambled eggs and I cook a mean pancake. Nice. So uh, that's what I, I'm trying to learn to cook corn fritters, but I haven't quite mastered that yet. Kathy's teaching me stuff, but um, I cook a pretty good breakfast. Nice. <laughs> There's a couple of things that I like doing. Oh, and the other thing is I, I like to read. If I can get somewhere on my own with the right book. I'm a slow reader, but I, I love doing it. Nice one. Yeah, that's a good list. So, Al, you've got a background in the Anglican Church in Sydney. I imagine you've seen a lot of healthy and dysfunctional uh, like marriages and relationships and male behaviour, that kind of thing. Um, I mentioned at the top that we, we, don't, we don't tend to get ministers on this show much, but could you share a bit of what it's like being a pastor and particularly the relational side of it? Yeah, good question. I've been... I've been pastoring, I've been involved in pastoral work, like Christian ministry work for ooh, 35 years now. Uh, and uh, there's, there's the greatest joys that you get to share um, lives with people um, and often at the most significant parts of their lives. So, you know, the marriages and the birth of children and, um, and in sometimes being able to help people is there's a, you know, even even to do a funeral for someone that they loved, to do it in the right way, it's emotionally tough, but it can also be satisfying to think that I actually helped someone through that difficult time. For sure. Uh, yeah, there's a privilege that people will share their lives with you, and that that's uh, that's great. At the same time, almost the flip side of that, it can be a fair bit of emotional wear and tear the people involved in Christian ministry, because there's no line between your work and your life. Yeah. And so um, it's not like, now I know doctors carry stress. I'm not de, uh, I'm not diminishing what they do. But if you go and see a doctor, you, you see him or her for 30 minutes, they make their diagnosis, they tell you what they've got to do, and then you're kind of, you're gone. In, in pastoral work, you, you live with people. And so when things are good, they can be really good. But if you've got, uh, you're trying to deal with difficult situations or there's conflict or whatever, there's kind of, there's almost, you know, there's no escape. There's no line between that and the rest of your life. Yeah. And I think that's why we see a lot of, um, actually with younger ones, there's, there's a fair bit of burnout and wear and tear. So um, it's learning how to, how to still care and how to manage that. 
can be a can be a challenge. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I wouldn't do anything else, <clears throat> and I'm not looking for a refund. I'm just saying there's great joys, and there's also you know the flip side is a fair bit of emotional wear and tear. You need you need to have your time off. You need to do stuff that's fun. You've got to kind of refresh yourself as well. Yeah, and I guess as you were talking about before, you kind of see all aspects of life as well, don't you? Like it's not just the the joyful things like the weddings and the births, but it's uh, yeah, it's people getting sick, marriage breakdowns, all, all kinds of things. Yeah, the best and the worst of life, and and if I could say the best and the worst of behaviour from people too, mm. um, you know, including me, including <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> So, Al, you wrote the the manual. That's the name of your book. Love it. And in the opening, uh, you dedicate it to a group called the Bridge Street Fellowship. Do you want to tell us about that and what role they played in writing the book? Yeah, uh, the Bridge Street Fellowship is a well, it's a fellowship for men. Um, actually, just men. I know it doesn't sound very politically correct, but we're aware that in an all male audience, there's a blokes are much more. Um, relaxed and able to talk honestly about a lot of issues that they wouldn't feel they could in a in a mixed audience. Um, it's mainly for business people. Uh, I think began looking to the finance industry, but there's guys from all different kinds of jobs. And what do we do? Well, we meet uh, on Friday mornings. Uh, one, one week, uh, they'll have a speaker, sometimes someone who's Kind of very well known. Other times, it's a guy from the group who will speak about their life and the challenges in their lives. And then we'll meet an alternative week in small groups and talk about those issues. And I found it to be brilliant because it doesn't assume any particular set of faith or belief. We look at the Bible and see what wisdom and what the Bible has to say about God and the difference faith would make. But it's the kind of thing you can invite anyone to. And uh, you wouldn't be worried about him getting hit over the head with a Bible, but just give him space to think. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I've been involved for mm, 13 years. It's great. Uh, What has happened over the years, I've been invited to speak on different things, like what does it look like um, to live as a son and care for your parents? What does it look like to be a a father? What does it look like to be a friend? Um, What's the idea of resilience look like in a man's life? And so I've had to think those things, look at what the Bible says about it, and then also get the sharp edges knocked off that by the blokes in the group. And uh, a whole lot of the content in this humble little book that I've written has come out of the Bridge Street Fellowship mm. and uh, on my my thinking being sharpened up by my peers. That's why that dedication. Yeah, awesome. And over the years, like you've been involved for a long time, um, what, what sort of difference do you feel that that has made not only to yourself but to some of the other guys? Oh, it's just meant, actually, it's meant some good friendships with guys that um, are my age and we're able to talk honestly with one another. I think that's the one. And also it does help. It helps keep me grounded in the real world. Um, you know, you, you say you don't have many ministers on this show. You can end up in a in a little church bubble uh, if you're not careful in my job. And what I really enjoy is I, I rub shoulders with blokes who are dealing with issues in banking or mining or law or it's, it's kind of, if you like, it's real-world stuff that they're dealing with and it's really good for me to, to hear that and understand the pressures. You know, it's not just me that lives with stress and... Uh, 
yeah, what's what's the real world like out there? <laughs> that's that's one of the things that's been very good for me. And I think the the men who come along, you know, a lot of guys come, they kick the tires, they don't stay, but uh, a lot of them do, and it, it it's. Uh, Real friendship for middle-aged men is very valuable, I mean, for young men too. But I mean, I, I guess I'm not middle-aged anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, real friendships for men are uh, are valuable. Yeah, and there's some real power as well, isn't it, in people sharing their stories? Because um, you'll get those those points where you deeply connect with what someone is saying. Maybe you've gone through something similar, um, or you know someone else who has, um, or it's totally different, and it's just this like really holistic learning experience for you where you see something from a, a totally different perspective and it can be a paradigm shift. Yes, yes. And and what I like about the culture of this group is there's no chest thumping. It's not, look how successful and clever I am. It's more, you know, I'm kind of making it up as I go as well and here's what I've struggled with. Um, and for those blokes who are who are followers of Jesus, they're able to talk about what real difference does uh, trusting him make, hmm. uh, but in a way that says to someone who's not there, have a think about this rather than, you know, let me hit you over the head with it. Yeah, yeah. so it's much more concrete, isn't it, rather than just an abstract proposition idea. Yeah, real and personal, I guess you can say that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into the guts of your book now. And the best place to start is by seeing what you mean when it comes to masculinity and healthy masculinity. You write this. Healthy masculinity is a willingness to take responsibility and use the power you have to care for and nurture those around you. So I I really love that. It's such a helpful reframing of what manhood can be, one that moves away from the ego and the performative macho nonsense and instead seeks to lift up others with what we have. So um, can I ask, Al, what has shaped your thinking uh, of this vision of manhood in particular? Yeah, Um, there's lots of wrong markers about masculinity, you know, like how big you are, how much you can bench press, the car you drive, um, the sports you follow. I mean, all that stuff can be fun as long as you don't think it's the main game. Um, yeah, that, that's just fun and cliches. Where do I start? I think regardless of what side you're on in the masculinity debate, people would agree that men have power and by that the ability to affect others. And there's all sorts of reasons why. Um for example, just generally, if a man's married or got a female partner, he's almost is usually bigger and stronger and louder is significant um, than her. So, just size and strength. Uh, biologically, uh, a woman is is so much more tied into motherhood than a man is in fatherhood. Like she's she's locked in biologically, and that that makes her. Uh, vulnerable men because of that men often have more financial power than women so there's all these things that go together toxic masculinity and and that really exists i think toxic masculinity is when men misuse that power and so they use that either the physical the financial the biological they use that as an opportunity to use or abuse women children um, other men um, to control or intimidate, and basically choosing that power you have against someone who's weaker, mm. and that that's toxic, absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, I don't think it's only men that misuse power. Women do it too, but in different ways. 
So if that's toxic masculinity, what's um, healthy masculinity is how you use that power. Now, I think we know intuitively, and um, certainly the Bible says, men have power in relationships. Um, the question is how do you use that? And I went through and looked at what the Bible says about all the different relationships that men have, you know, as sons or husbands or fathers or friends or masters, um, even young men and old men. And every time the Bible talks to you about how to live in that relationship, it says be careful how you use the power that you have. Mm. So you, you know, for example, if you're a dad, when your kids are little, you've got you got all sorts of power. You decide where they go, what they wear, what they eat, what they, and the Bible says be very careful how you use that, Dad. Don't uh, embitter them or frustrate them. You gently train them and discipline them, you know, carefully. That's that's one example. Or yep. um, uh, if you're a son, there comes a time when mum and dad are dependent and the Bible says you need to step up and care for them, you know, honour them, look after them. Uh, how you know how should you do that? So uh, that's why I've said it's it's a willingness to step up and take responsibility and use that power to care for others. Um, now people have said to me, if I can say, people have said to me, oh wait a minute, how's that different to what a woman? You know, that sounds like a woman could be called to do that. I said yes, but I don't think women need to hear the take responsibility thing as much as men do. Women are much more likely to take responsibility. In fact, it's kind of biologically locked in with motherhood. Yeah. Uh, it's men need to hear, you know, you can make a difference in the lives of the people around you. You just need to step up, be a grown-up and start doing that. That's what, it, that's what the healthy role of a man is. Yeah. Being a man or a boy has very little to do with your age. Well, let's talk about that age and that transition now. Yep going from boyhood to manhood. Uh, obviously, it's a significant process, but it's also one where we don't tend to draw clear lines in our culture very well. I mean, when you turn 18, you, you're officially recognised as an adult and you can legally drink and vote, those sorts of things. But those mm. two things in and of themselves, they don't really mean much in terms of preparing you for a life of responsibility, do they? So you suggest in your book five hard truths that we need to learn as guys truths that will ultimately help us see outside ourselves and instead orient our lives towards others. So could you share these five hard truths? Sure. They're not, uh, I, how could I say, I borrowed them uh, from uh, a writer called Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R-S, and his book, Adam's Return. And what uh, Richard Rohr argues is that traditional cultures, like I guess what we might almost call tribal cultures, they all had a kind of a male initiation ceremonies mm. that moved you from being a boy to a man, from being a boy to a, well, really a useful man. Now, <laughs> he says his research shows this. He doesn't actually say what the research is, but the, it comes up with five things that a boy needs to learn to be a useful man. And, uh, yeah, they're five Five very important truths. Before I do, I think I haven't got an alternative to some kind of initiation ceremony. We've, we've lost that as a culture. I know there were wrong initiations when I was a young, a young man growing up uh, in the country, you know, like you, how much you could drink or, you know, 
how fast you could drive or or whatever. Um, that's just dumb. Uh, but anyway, here's here's the five the five hard truths. Richard Raw says one: you need to understand that life is hard, and it will. And and actually, Jordan Peterson's banging the drum on this. And that is, if you're not expecting difficulties in life, if you've grown up with your parents, you know, snow plowing and and pushing everything out of the way so that life's never been difficult. When when hard things do come, they'll flatten you. So you need to learn that life is hard and expect it. Second one, you are not that important, meaning I know your mum thinks you're the centre of the world, but actually you're not. And uh, you're no more important than anyone else, shall we say. And that <laughs> uh, that's a lesson that young men need to learn. You're not the centre of the world and uh, get over yourself and realise that. So life is hard. You're not that important. And then third, your life is not about you. Now, that, that one's a bit counterintuitive, and that is uh, you're not here just to um, pursue endless pleasure or be a hedonist or whatever, that actually real meaning and purpose in life is found in serving and caring for others. And so why are you here on the planet? Well, to actually look after other people and to be useful and to serve. And then the fourth one, you're not in control. As I get older, I'm more and more aware of how much of life I I don't control. Uh, and I don't just mean you can't control the weather or the stock market. I mean you can't control any other person. Yep. Uh, and if you do, um, you'll either smother them or they'll let you down. Or the only the only person on the planet that you're actually responsible for is yourself. Yep. And what you do, it's realizing that that's that's important. Um, so you're not in control. And then the last one and uh, on this cheery list is you're going to die <laughs> and it's coming to terms with that, yeah. uh, that you will die and uh, it's worth facing up to that and uh, it changes the way that you'll live and what's important to you. So there's the five. Let me go through again quickly. Life is hard. You're not that important. Your life is not about you. You're not in control and you're going to die. Mm. Now, what I've actually done, it's kind of a bit reverse of what I, how you'd normally read the Bible. But interesting, when you go to the Bible, all those five truths are there, loud and clear in the Bible. Yep. And so it reorients the way that you, that you see life and how you live. Yeah, sure, expect it to be hard. I'm not the centre of the world. Why am I here? I'm going to make life better for other people. I'm not in control, but um, I'm going to do my best. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die. And then how do you engage with your creator uh, who says these things? So it's, it's learning those five things, I think, for, for boys actually helps you move into being a responsible grown-up man. Yeah, yeah. And I suspect that, like, as you, you were struggling with the initiation ritual there, like to find a thing that could do all those five in one particular moment, probably pretty difficult. Well, <laughs> I reckon you can find a father or older men who can teach you this over time. Yes, yeah. That's the challenge for older men. How do I model this and teach this to the younger men in my life? That's the challenge for us old blokes. Let's give the initiation right one crack anyway. Um, we've got a mutual friend, Sam Chan, and he started doing initiation rituals with his boys when they turned 14. I think he just did the first one, gave that a crack. Yep. It was something like 
riding from one end of Sydney over the Harbour Bridge to the other by themselves, <laughs> or or maybe with <laughs> Sam. I can't I can't remember. But either way, it was it was like some grueling long bike ride that they didn't think that they'd be able to do. Yeah, they got to the end, and and then Sam taught his boy some of these truths um, afterwards. I got on him. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just something like that. Yep, I've known other fathers who've gone on a road trip with their sons. Yeah. If you sit down and think about it, yeah, there's lots of possible options. Yeah, plenty of feral pigs out there, aren't there? <laughs> yep. I took my son hunting um, when he was about 13 or 14, but at the end of it he said, Dad, I'm just not into it. So um, that's fair and enough. that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, he'd rather play the guitar. Yeah, I was going to get him checked whether he's a danger to society with a guitar rather than a rifle, but uh, I think he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <Nice. laughs> One of my favourite references in your book is to the excellent TV show Rake about a rogue and reckless criminal lawyer named Cleaver Green. Uh, his son asked him one day, Dad, why are you such a screw-up? And after a contemplative pause, he says, I guess I lack a sense of life's continuity. I'm glad you put that in your book there. And it's a brilliant insight into his lack of self-control and his need for constant gratification. And it's quite representative of of the culture that we inhabit, like a culture that's built on distraction and addiction, excess, access to everything and short-term thinking. So you say in your book that we need to have vision over willpower to kind of be able to contend with this context. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? And and how does it help us with playing the long game in our relationships and our responsibilities? Yeah, we, we certainly are in a culture that's built on uh, instant gratification. Um, <laughs> the, the best example I've seen that for a while, uh, Kathy got um, some cheap, cheap holiday bargain in Cairns in February when it rains all the time. But we're walking around the marina and I saw a company offering croc spotting, okay, so the chance to go and observe this ancient apex predator and be at one with nature, except it was croc spotting on a jet ski. And um, I thought, you know, there, there you go. You want to go croc spotting? Quick, let's go. We've got to do it at, uh, you know, 80 kilometres an hour the way past. <laughs> yeah, what a view. Which is the exact opposite of delayed gratification. But the thing that I was trying to write about is this. If we want to actually achieve anything in life, it's going to take delayed gratification. And that is you need to be able to see the long-term picture of what it is you want and see it very clearly because if you don't, the immediate is always going to win. Hmm. So the immediate pleasure, the immediate, I want it now, and, and boy, I feel that. I mean, I've got a bit of ADHD. I'm, I'm the guy who has trouble letting the microwave finish. You know, life doesn't come fast enough for me, but... Uh, you, you've got to see what it is that you really want. And ironically, that's the way to look after future you. So future you is a function of how present you acts. Um, or if you like, present you is a function of how past you acted. I think I said that right. Yeah. yeah. But you think if you think if you want to achieve anything in life, you need delayed gratification. Like um, if you're going to study now so you can get qualified for something in the future, that means you just see very clearly what it is you want. And instead of sitting on your bum watching Netflix, you actually need to study, um, exercise. Uh, you know, I, what gets me out of bed in the morning is I see what I, you know, I want to stay fairly fit and healthy and that, and that means putting up with something now because of what you want in the future, you know, diet, alcohol, any of those things. 
rather than beating yourself up in the present, is seeing the future clearly. What is it that I that I really want? And I think as men, we <laughs> we need to get clear on that. You know, what is it I really want? How do we think longer term? Um, and one of my mates at uh, Bridge Street Fellowship says, just learn to play the long game. Yeah. What is it you want? What is it that really matters? What it, I mean, ironically, the way to real freedom is self-control. Mm. I know self-control doesn't seem very sexy or exciting, but who's in control in self-control is you. And uh, so how do you, how do we try and learn that? Yeah. I read a book by Walter Michel um, called The Marshmallow Test. And that's the one where he, um, he'd, with parents' permission, he'd get a five-year-old, put them in a room on their own or with an, with an instructor and say, look, we'll give you one marshmallow now or if you can wait five minutes, we'll come back and we'll give you two marshmallows if you haven't eaten the first one. Uh, and you can still find this on YouTube, but pictures of these little kids trying to wait, et cetera. But when they tracked over a few decades, the kids that could wait, the kids that actually had the the self-control and could delay gratification, they did better in almost every metric of life. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their weight, their health, their relationships, their career, their it's and Michelle in that book says we can learn it. We can kind of learn techniques to help us delay gratification and and think about the future, have a clear vision of what we want. Yeah. Okay. I'm 64. I'm still working on it. <laughs> more than ever convinced that it's one of the secrets to to putting you know making life work. Yeah, great. Well, let's um, look at the the kind of flip side, I guess, of that a little bit. According to a recent survey this year, forty three percent of Australian males are lonely, and sixteen percent are experiencing high levels of loneliness. And it's not older guys who have retired or lost loved ones. It's people right in the prime of life, age thirty five to forty nine, who are three times more lonely than retirees. So it can mean poor mental health, struggling for connections, the midlife crisis could be lurking. Do you have advice for guys in that kind of category? Yeah, it is. um, It's surprisingly common until you read the literature or look at the surveys and then it's not surprising at all. I suspect men, men often we're not good at friendships. I don't know whether it's kind of the you've got to be the strong, um, self-sufficient, solitary male. There might be a little bit of that kind of cliche that holds us back. It may be just interesting that 35 to 49 is probably the busiest time of your life. Mm. If you're married, that's when you're most likely to have little kids. It's peak time in your your job or, you know, you're trying to climb the ladder, you're trying to pay the bills, you're, you're pretty much flat out. Mm. Interesting too, that's the prime time for the midlife crisis where you know, my dreams are dying, I'm so busy all the time, why, where's the fun in life, um, et cetera. I suspect there's a, there's a kind of a default thing that we expect our, if we're married or in a relationship, we're expecting our wife or our partner to meet all our emotional needs and that's, that's too much to put on any one person. And so, yeah, that's a problem. It's interesting, men, I think men make friendships doing stuff together. Yeah. I know this will sound, you know, sexist or whatever, but it's just true. Women are more likely to be able to just kind of grab coffee together and to talk to one another and, you know, the, the caricature is women speak face-to-face. Men speak shoulder-to-shoulder while they're doing things. Hmm. So it's having those interests that um, 
you know, to go and hit a golf ball together or go fishing or or whatever. That it gives the the social lubricant for blokes to get to know each other. Yeah. A lot of guys around where I live uh, love cycling, you know, and so they'll get on a bike and and ride together for two, three hours. Yeah. It does, if I could say, I know I've got a dog in the fight, but it does mean that churches and the way that they operate can be an answer to this. But I, I do think that the leadership of churches need to think clearly about how do we help men spend time together and get to know each other. Because mm-hmm. of, often we're men find it difficult to initiate friendships. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think long-term friendships are really valuable. Um, you know, I've, I've got a few mates at 35-year friendships, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, a 35-year friendship is is worth more than 35 one-year friendships, but it always costs. It's never convenient to see those old mates. There's always something else to do. Um, and also you have friends for that long, they'll drive you mad. So, But, but it, it means a deliberate choice to invest and keep up with those guys. Yeah. Those, those long-term friendships are really very, very precious. So endurance and playing the long game is important. But at the same time, it's one of those things that I, I get this feeling that maybe it could be a factor in the rise of loneliness as well, um, that, that sense of having that, that long vision. We, we talked uh, another time about this tendency for guys to become bored and stressed at the same time where um, they can be weighed down with commitments and feel trapped, experience this sense of Groundhog Day, and then maybe want to do something impulsive or exciting or reckless, um, just something which can kind of blow up those key relationships and responsibilities. Do you have some thoughts on that as well? Uh, lots, mate. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've spoken to hundreds of men's groups, and, and when I raise the topic of Groundhog Day, I mean, there might, there might still be someone listening who doesn't know. It's the movie with Bill Murray. It was made in 1993, and Bill Murray gets caught in a loop and lives the same day again and again and again and again. When I talk about Groundhog Day, almost every head in the room nods. Blokes just know you get to a certain age and you think, oh, not this again. You know, and it goes round and round. Mm. So there's Groundhog Day living the same day and that that's boredom. And as I said, I've got a bit of ADHD, I think. And it, I get so bored sometimes I can taste it. <laughs> I think most men do. Right? We get bored. And then the other thing that comes is stress. Right? So you wound up and thinking, how am I going to get through the day? I'm stressed. I'm stressed at work. I'm stressed at home. I'm stressed... What I think is logically impossible is being bored and stressed at the same time. But I achieve it and I think most people do. So what's the answer to that? Uh, what I have found over a long time is bored men are dangerous. Mm. Bored men do stupid things. So what's what's the answer? I just tell blokes, get used to it. Groundhog Day is inevitable. That is life. Groundhog Day is inevitable. It's going to happen. It doesn't matter what you do or what job you've got or what you are going to have in Groundhog Day. And I know they do TED Talks on people say, follow your passions and blah, blah, blah. The person giving the TED Talk is one in a thousand. That's why they're doing the TED Talk. <laughs> the 999 listening is us and we live in Groundhog Day. It's it's going to be boring, right? Get used to it. Now, what do I, what's the answer? So, look, you've got to understand really clearly who are we doing this for and why are we doing it, all right? 
If you've got a wife and kids, and a lot of us have, not all, but if you've got a wife and kids and you're in Groundhog Day in a job, whatever, if you're very clear on I'm doing this because I love them and I'm providing for them, or you've got other people in your life that you care about or a particular cause, it's being very clear on who am I doing this for and why am I doing it, it makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. So part of being a growing up is a willingness to step up and live with Groundhog Day. Now you can, you get bored enough and do something stupid and blow up your whole life, but at the end of that blow up, guess what's back? Groundhog Day mm. and just life's worse. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the way it is. But who are you doing it for and why? And if you can really understand that, it does change it. And then at the same time, I'm not saying if you can change life, if you can adjust circumstances, if you can find something more interesting, by all means, do it. So you've got to have something that uh, refreshes you. I don't know whether that's hitting a golf ball or catching a fish or learning to cook pancakes or, I don't know, whatever it is. You need, you need something. Hmm. It's interesting that the, the New Testament talks about for the, the man who follows Jesus, what do you need? It says endurance and patience. Yeah. Keep going, keep putting up with it. That's was life in the first century or the 21st century. Uh, it's not a particularly happy message, but, hey, it's real. And that's how you look after people in your life. I like it. And so speaking of relationships, you've got a bit of a call to action to invest in those important relationships around you. You invite the readers to, to man up uh, as a son, as a friend, as a workmate, as a single man, if that's you, uh, as a husband and as a father. So why are all these relationships so important to, to actually begin to discover ourselves? No doubt all these relationships are different, but are there any threads that maybe carry through all of them? Well, the way, let me just say, the way that the Bible explains who we are, the Bible says we're valuable as individuals, okay? Um, and that's that's fairly unique, like for, for a voice from the ancient world into the modern world, that's, that's unusual. You're valuable as an individual, but the way that you live out your life is in relationship with others. And so um, as, as, how do you express masculinity? There isn't so much a definition of masculinity in the Bible. It's more this is the way a man behaves as, as a son uh, or as a friend or as a, a master with uh, servants or as a servant, you know, working for somebody or as a husband. And the way that those relationships work, if you want them to work, is to be concerned for others rather than just yourself. Hmm. But that's it's a it sounds a little counterintuitive, but it's as you live your life for others that you'll find joy and purpose in life. Yeah. I'm still working on okay, work in progress, but I'm more and more convinced that as you live your life for others and care for them, your life gets bigger and you'll find more joy. As we're selfish, our life shrinks down. Hmm. Now, incidentally, it's exactly what Jesus says about if you give him your life and live for others, for him and for others, life will grow. It says we keep our life and live in selfishness that our life will shrink. But that's, I think that's the purpose. It's those, it's those relationships. The more you invest in relationship with others, the more you'll find joy and purpose. Yeah. It's the way God made the world. Yeah. Um, and you, you see the end point of lives that have been lived very selfishly 
th- those those lives and relationships shrink over time. And we talked about before that, like the the culture in many ways pushes us towards being self sufficient and being fully realized individuals, but. We actually want to go against that, don't we, and, and go beyond being just an individual and, and being independent to being interdependent, don't we, uh, of really yes. being connected with the people around us that we care about and even, yeah, being able to be vulnerable with them and to for them to be able to depend on us and, and us to be able to depend on them too. Yeah, 100%. There's lots of good things in our culture and there's lots of dumb things as well. So you've got to kind of sort out what's what's good, what's not in our culture. You're absolutely right about being uh, relating to other people properly. Yeah, that kind of interdependence, yeah. Mm. So one of the things that I hear in certain conservative circles is that there's a crisis of masculinity going on. How much do you think this idea has merit? How much do you think it's fabricated? Maybe it's tapping into fears that we're losing a certain style of masculinity. What's your take on this? Um. I have read a few books about this, two that were um, interesting. David Gilmore uh, wrote Manhood in the Making. He's a professor of anthropology. He looked at a whole series of, um, how would you call it, traditional cultures or pre-industrial cultures. For example, you know, the Maasai tribe in Africa, other tribal cultures. And what he found is, I'll give you a quick summary, is that gender ideology In other words, the value placed on manhood reflects the material circumstances of life. So what he said is the harder that life is, the more difficult survival is, the more uh, more of a challenge to survival, the more value was placed on manhood. Okay. Uh, And so uh, I can't help but think that in our culture, yes, Masculinity does seem to have been devalued and certainly, you know, testosterone is a dirty word. But that's only happened because life has been so soft and safe in the last 80 or so years. And it's as life has got softer and safer, et cetera, you you can devalue men and masculinity and testosterone, et cetera. There's another book by Nancy Percy called... um, the toxic war on masculinity. She is uh, she's a brilliant scholar. She's a great writer. Um, P e a r c e y p e c. She'll track what's happened with men, masculinity. Uh, it's particularly American, um, but does have um, relevance into Australia. She'll track that, say, from um, the early eighteen hundreds through to the present, and say what the biggest single factor that's changed the the way that men relate. Uh, in our culture, et cetera, is the Industrial Revolution. Yep. So that took men out of the home and out of everyday involvement with family, children, et cetera, that then once men were taken out of the home for so much of the day, women raised boys and that took that male modelling away from the home so much and she traces, kind of draws lines to so many of the problems that we have today. Now, what does all that mean? I think it's a mistake to assume that because in our culture so many fewer of us actually work in heavy physical jobs that testosterone isn't needed as much for just sheer plain hard work, it's a mistake to think that we don't need men anymore. 
or that men and their roles don't matter. One of the mistakes you see is that I think so many young men now think, well, you know, the women have got it under control, the girls have got it, I'll just wander off into the virtual world and, uh, you know, gaming or pornography or or whatever. But, no, no, we, we still desperately need men with healthy masculinity investing in others, obviously in family life and the effect that dads have with, with kids and marriage, etc. but in our society generally. Yeah, there's a long answer that may or may not uh, survive editing, <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 been possible to devalue masculinity and testosterone because life has been so soft and safe. And I, I'm all for soft and safe; it's great. But the mistake is to think we don't need men who are properly masculine. Sure. Do you think it's a, a crisis, or is that overblown? Uh, I certainly see a lot more discussion about it in the media, uh, in books, etc. Now, whether or not that's just because I'm now looking for it, but I think there is a genuine, I think young men today are asking a whole lot of questions about what it means to be a man that didn't ever come up as I grew up. Mm. Um, there probably should have been questions asked as I grew up too. <laughs> so, yeah, with that in mind, um, there are a number of people that have kind of been a hit, I guess, in the culture, or at least, um, yeah, have gained popularity or notoriety, depending on your stance. Um, you interact a bit with Jordan Peterson in your book, but then as well, you, there are other examples like Joe Rogan. And then on the more extreme end, you've got um, Andrew Tate and the kind of blatant misogynist kind of incel crowd. Um why do you think these sorts of guys have become so popular, particularly with high school boys and young men? Uh, I think it's probably that young men are looking for role models. You know, how do I how do I live as a man? I'm not. I know a little bit about Andrew Tate. I haven't followed him on on social media. Uh, what I do see doesn't look great, but I, I wouldn't say I've I've really followed that. What I know about him is secondhand. I have listened to a lot of Jordan Peterson. I've read both his 12 Rules books, listened to his lectures, etc. A lot of what Jordan Peterson says lines up with what the Bible would say about how a man should live. Not all, but, but a fair bit of that. So I think it's partly looking for role models. Interesting, Jordan Peterson's message, as far as I can work out, is this. Life is hard, so get your act together, grow the hell up, and make life better for the people around you. Well, that, that just resonates with young men. It's, it's a big call. Uh, you're told to make a difference. Um, you know, I'm not surprised that it's young men who, who are following him. Mm. And Joe Rogan is interesting. Joe Rogan likes to pretend that he's a buffhead, but he's not. He's very clever. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a good thinker. He's got millions of people following him too. So just interesting to watch those guys, yeah. Sure. And what did you make of Jordan Peterson's letter to the churches? Um, personally, I, I think the first seven and a half minutes are totally incomprehensible drivel, <laughs> but the last two and a half minutes, there are some interesting thoughts there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think you're right about the last two and a half minutes. Uh, he said, ask more of young men uh, to churches, and that is exactly what Jesus does. He wants your whole life, and if you want to give him half, he says not interested, wants it all. Mm. Uh, so ask a lot. I think he's spot on there. And then he says, uh, quit doing social justice, stop saving the planet, and work with young men's souls. I couldn't agree more. So really he's just calling us to 
call young men to follow Jesus and make that commitment and and find life. I don't think, I say this with all the humility I can manage, uh, which is a lot, uh, I don't think Jordan Peterson really understands the Christian gospel yet. So uh, he's calling um, young men to lift their game and act morally, etc., which I'm all for, but it's a personal commitment to Jesus as a living person as well that's the Christian faith. And I, I, I think Dr. Peterson thinks of Jesus as the kind of archetype of sacrificial love, etc., but he hasn't got on to Jesus as the living person and the Lord who calls us to follow him. But that's my opinion. I'm a fan. Yeah, I think he's great, but he, I don't think he quite gets the Christian gospel yet. No, I think he's purposefully elusive when it comes to those sorts of questions. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, he's got a big target painted on him, and so I think he is, uh, uh, yeah, elusive. I, I get it. And uh, speaking of cultural phenomenons, the Barbie movie has been incredibly successful and popular. Obviously, the key feature of that movie is the gender dynamics. So assuming you've seen it, what are your thoughts on the interplay between men and women? Yes, I did. Uh, <laughs> I went to the Barbie movie a couple of weeks ago with uh, with my wife, Kathy. I think partly the reason the Barbie movie has, has done well in terms of box office is that um, every Christian pastor in the Western world has been to see it because we're supposed to. Um, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon. Uh, what do I think? Uh, I think Barbie's not really aimed at me. 64-year-old uh, pastors probably wasn't the primary audience they were after. What are they saying? It, it's a clever movie in a way, all dressed up as, you know, pink and sugary, etc. and so it looks good. What's it saying? Well, men and women don't understand each other. There's obvious message there that it can be hard to be a woman, uh, no doubt, uh, that men rule the world in patriarchy. Uh, not so sure about that anymore. But I, I think it is saying, and I think it's right here, that neither men nor women enjoy the fact that they don't get on and the, you know, the gender wars aren't any good for anyone. Mm. Anyway, that, that's some thoughts. It is interesting how that, that theme uh, is, is so popular. You know, and men and women and gender, and they're just there's just total confusion in our culture at the moment about that. Yeah. Oh, by the way, my one other thought is I wouldn't mind swapping Ryan Gosling abs, but uh, anyway, <laughs> he, he'd obviously never to work into those abs uh, for the movie. <laughs> yeah, sure, the life of an actor. <laughs> so let's uh, let's move more to your kind of personal journey and uh, yeah, some of the, the ways that you kind of live your life and what inspires you. And that's centred around Jesus, isn't it? So he's remembered and modelled as many things, but one that's perhaps overlooked and underappreciated is his masculinity. How would you describe Jesus' masculinity? And then uh, you write in your book that Jesus is the greatest man and worth following, so you could elaborate on that too. Yeah, well, I'll begin that last thing. That is, I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus really is the Son of God or God become human. Why? Because uh, I I see his crucifixion, well, his teaching, the crucifixion and his resurrection, that there's very good evidence that all of those things truly happened. Uh, and so looking into the history, et cetera, of Christianity, I believe that Jesus' claims are true. 
In terms of masculinity, well, if masculinity, healthy masculinity is about using the power you have to look after people, you just see this wonderful example that I think you can tell the size of a man by how he treats the little people. Mm. Everyone's everyone's polite to the prime minister or the president, et cetera, you know, because, but how do you treat the little people who can't do anything for you? And you see Jesus says Jesus is a giant in that regard. You know, like in John chapter 8, they, they bring the woman caught in adultery and, and Jesus defends her and cares for her. Or in Luke chapter 7, the woman who comes and weeps and wipes his feet with her hair, um, at some cost to his reputation, he steps up to defend her from the way that others would speak of her. But Nancy Pierce, he's got a page of different examples where Jesus treated women in a countercultural way in the first century, that he protected them, cared for them, listened to them. In fact, actually the first witnesses to the resurrection are women in a culture where women uh, as witnesses in court uh, were devalued. Mm. So, and then as well as that, he's got time for the uh, marginalised, you know, for beggars, for children, for etc. He can care for those people, but he'll also stand up to the religious leaders and the powerful people of the day. Yeah. So it's a beautiful example of power used to, um, with compassion, to care for people and to stand up for the truth. Yep. Lovely. You read it and you look for it. It just he just leaps off the page. And uh, what are three resources for anyone that wants to think about healthy masculinity? Okay. First one's Australian. Steve Bidolf's book, The New Manhood, is very good. There's a couple of things I might disagree with him on, but uh, he's an excellent writer. It's, it's a good book to think through manhood. Then there's two American books, The Men We Need, The Men We Need by Brant Hansen. Uh, he's a, an American Christian man with a, who does a radio show, etc. It's very well written. He talks about six decisions a man needs to make, and um, it's written in in little three page chapters. So it's kind of like you, have, you know you can read it in short bursts. Uh, very well written. Lots to think about. Uh, it's good, and it crosses culture from the USA to here quite well. And then the last one is. Uh, at kind of a more scholarly level. So Nancy Piercy, the book I mentioned earlier, The Toxic War on Masculinity, it came out this year, it's 270-odd pages. There's a, you know, a, a billion footnotes. She's very carefully researched things. If you want to read and track masculinity, men's roles across 200 years in Western culture, uh, it's a very good book. Hmm. But it's, it's kind of, if you like, if you're a reader and you want to dig into this, Nancy Piercy. If you want something that, that's very practical and will give you something to think about but it's not hard to read, then The Men We Need uh, or The New Manhood, they're three good books. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Al. Great to hear from you. Uh, my pleasure, Aaron. It's great to speak with you, mate. This is one of those episodes where I really didn't know where to go with the reflection. I mean, how do you represent half the human race in a meaningful way that is fair and not dominated by stereotypes and cliches? How do you avoid empty platitudes or even worse, mansplaining, a complex and pretty emotive topic? Well, 
Let me hone in on a few ideas that Al got me thinking about and which hopefully leave us with something constructive. The first was the very real issue of male loneliness for those around middle age, the Groundhog Day stage, as Al called it. McCrindle Research wrote a few years back that for a nation that prides itself on mateship, we seem to be pretty lousy friends. Well, guys are anyway. According to McCrindle, 85% of guys struggle to make time for their mates. 85%. Now, I can understand it during the 30s and onwards, as it's that stage of life where people will need you the most. Your marriage, your kids, your work, and your older parents, if their health is declining, will often rank way higher in the dependency scale. But maybe we need to depend on our mates even more in those times. Maybe they're depending on us too. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Our networks and our acquaintances, they're great when times are easy. But we need real friends when the hard times come. And we need to be a real friend when others are going through the ringer. And I get it, of course. Manning up as a friend is hard when we're drowning in our commitments. But we don't have to go alone. I suspect loneliness plays a huge part in the suicide rates in Australia. We did an episode on that a little while ago. And our guest Mitch said that there are nine suicides a day in Australia and eight of them are men. Those percentages look eerily similar, but I also don't want to oversimplify things. Another factor that I think plays into it is finding meaning, which is pretty similar to what Al was saying about having vision over willpower. One of the things that more conservative voices will say about masculinity is that many men today struggle with finding meaning as a result of postmodernity and a rapidly changing society. Now, I'm no Jordan Peterson fan, much less Ben Shapiro, But for all the right-wing chest-beating, I do think that meaning matters. And that guys are more susceptible to feeling that loss of meaning. And so I would want to ask, what is the vision for manhood in our society at the moment? There was a really interesting New York Times interview that came out recently, where feminist and comedian Caitlin Moran, she's interviewed about her new book, What About Men? And she gets asked about the political divide here. Why has it been harder for the left than the right to gain the kind of currency you mentioned earlier? So, a compelling narrative and articulation of manhood. She says this in response. Men on the liberal left, while feminism was having this massive movement, they were like, okay, we're not going to start talking about men while this is happening. So they started out for a decade. And now their sons have grown up in an era where they've heard people go, typical straight white men, toxic masculinity. And those sons are like, stuff this, because they don't see what a recent corrective feminism is compared with thousands of years of patriarchy. They have only ever known people saying the future is female. So they are quite rightly going, who's going to say something good about the men? The people that they've seen are Andrew Tate. And I think she makes a good point. I mean, there's a time for staying silent, but it's naive to think that there won't be opportunists who fill the void with their septic ideas. So obviously they're not the kind of role model anyone wants. What kind of role model do we want? Well, it'll probably come as a little surprise for anyone who's listened to Deeper Questions that we think Christianity has something to offer here. Now, the Christian faith often gets blamed as a force for patriarchy, and that's not totally without merit. And yet, historically, if you look at the civilizations where women have achieved and enjoyed the most rights, I suspect that most, if not all of them, have come from a country that was soaked in the vision of Christianity. You may think of it as a fruit of the Enlightenment and secularism, but I think it has that familiar sweetness that goes right back to the Garden of Eden, personally. In Genesis 1, man and woman are both made in the image of God, imbued with the same dignity, 
wonder and breath of life. Maybe gender equality hasn't been as fast as we would have liked, but Christianity has always been quietly transformative wherever it goes. One of the things often misunderstood about the Christian faith is that it never seeks rapid revolutionary political change overnight, preferring peace and stability wherever possible. In many ways, it tries to be apolitical, working within the confines of a system while subversively undermining it through love, generosity, and dignity. It has all the tools to change hearts and minds in a sustainable way. And I think it gives a really positive vision for manhood and womanhood, and for humanity in general. But it's also wary of our limitations, and our ability to corrupt a good thing or take it too far. Part of the curse in Genesis involves men and women being brought into a state of conflict rather than complementarity. But it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game. We can lift one another up. We can realise the fullness of our humanity together. But we probably need to know who we are first. There was another good article in The Atlantic by another Caitlin, this time Caitlin Flanagan, talking about heroic masculinity. But she cautions that heroic and toxic masculinity can easily exist in the same man. And she asks, what if we understood that boys are born into a destiny, not a pathology? And what if promoting healthy forms of masculinity means that we ourselves have to foster and cultivate a healthy outlook and attitude towards men? And this won't always be easy, especially if there have been men or male role models in your life who have routinely let you down or misused their power. And let me be clear that I'm saying this to everyone. There are plenty of men out there who just feel sorry for themselves and need that better vision. I know I'll need that better vision when those Groundhog Day moments come, which they inevitably will. Most of us probably have a mix of positive or negative experiences with the people around us. Sometimes it's a result of gender dynamics, but sometimes it's just people being people. We're all capable of kindness, generosity and respect. We're all capable of being rude, selfish and ignorant. Some things will be biological, physiological and cognitive points of difference for men and women. And rather than resent those differences, we can work to understand them even grow to appreciate them too. Who's going to say something about the men? Well, let's not leave it to the toxic man babies of this world to dictate terms. Let's point to a better example and tell a better story of masculinity. And for Christians, that story is Christ, the greatest man, as Al said, and I wouldn't disagree. Jesus has plenty to say on manhood, but even more than that, he backs it up with action. His vision is one of sacrifice, one of taking responsibility for all of us, one of caring for the little people, and one of redeeming broken relationships, including with our maker. And that's a pretty grand and fulfilling vision if you ask me. Probably not too presumptuous if you got this far. Thanks for listening to Deeper Questions. If you're enjoying these conversations, maybe shoot your favourite episodes to friends or family. And you can always find more at thirdspace.org.au.